Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. Conan by Robert E. Howard. Episode 18. The Jewels of Guahleur. Part 1 of 2. Chapter 1. The cliffs rose sheer from the jungle, towering ramparts of stone that glinted jade blue and dull crimson in the rising sun, and curved away and away to east and west, above the waving emerald ocean of fronds and leaves. It looked insurmountable, a giant palisade with its sheer curtains of solid rock, in which bits of quartz winked dazzlingly in the sunlight, but the man who was working his tedious way upward was already halfway to the top. He came from a race of hillmen, accustomed to scaling forbidding crags, and he was a man of unusual strength and agility. His only garment was a pair of short, red silk breeks, and his sandals were slung to his back, out of his way, as were his sword and dagger. The man was powerfully built, supple as a panther. His skin was bronzed by the sun, his square-cut black mane confined by a silver band about his temples. His iron muscles, quick eyes, and sure feet served him well here, for it was a climb to test these qualities to the utmost. A hundred and fifty feet below him waved the jungle. An equal distance above him, the rim of the cliffs was etched against the morning sky. He labored like one driven by the necessity of haste, yet he was forced to move at a snail's pace, clinging like a fly on a wall. His groping hands and feet found niches and knobs, precarious holds at best, and sometimes he virtually hung by his fingernails. Yet upward he went, clawing, squirming, fighting for every foot. At times he paused to rest his aching muscles and, shaking the sweat out of his eyes, twisted his head to stare searchingly out over the jungle, combing the green expanse for any trace of human life or motion. Now the summit was not far above him, and he observed, only a few feet above his head, a break in the sheer stone of the cliff. An instant later he had reached it, a small cavern just below the edge of the rim. As his head rose above the lip of its floor, he grunted. He clung there, his elbows hooked over the lip. The cave was so tiny that it was little more than a niche cut in the stone, but it held an occupant. A shriveled brown mummy, cross-legged, arms folded on the withered breast upon which the shrunken head was sunk, sat in the little cavern. The limbs were bound in place with rawhide thongs, which had become mere rotted wisps. If the form had ever been clothed, the ravages of time had long ago reduced the garments to dust. But thrust between the crossed arms and the shrunken breast, there was a roll of parchment, yellowed with age to the color of old ivory. The climber stretched forth a long arm and wrenched away this cylinder. Without investigation, he thrust it into his girdle and hauled himself up until he was standing in the opening of the niche. A spring upward, and he caught the rim of the cliffs and pulled himself up and over, almost with the same motion. There he halted, panting and stared downward. It was like looking into the interior of a vast bowl rimmed by a circular stone wall. The floor of the bowl was covered with trees and denser vegetation, though nowhere did the growth duplicate the jungle denseness of the outer forest. The cliffs marched around it without a break, and of uniform height. It was a freak of nature, not to be paralleled perhaps in the whole world, 
a vast natural amphitheater, a circular bit of forested plain, three or four miles in diameter, cut off from the rest of the world and confined within the ring of those palisaded cliffs. But the man on the cliffs did not devote his thoughts to marveling at the topographical phenomenon. With tense eagerness he searched the treetops below him and exhaled a gusty sigh when he caught the glint of marble domes amidst the twinkling green. It was no myth then. Below him lay the fabulous and deserted palace of Orkminon. Conan the Cimmerian, late of the Baracha Isles, of the Black Coast, and of many other climes where life ran wild, had come to the kingdom of Keshen following the lure of a fabled treasure that outshone the horde of the Turanian kings. Keshem was a barbaric kingdom lying in the eastern hinterlands of Kush, where the broad grasslands merge with the forests that roll up from the south. The people were a mixed race, a dusky nobility ruling a population that was largely pure Negro. The rulers, princes and high priests, claimed descent from a white race which, in a mythical age, had ruled a kingdom whose capital city was Alkmenon. Conflicting legends sought to explain the reason for that race's eventual downfall and the abandonment of the city by the survivors. Equally nebulous were the tales of the teeth of Guatlur, the treasure of Alkmenon, but these misty legends had been enough to bring Conan to Keshen over vast distances of plain, river-laced jungle and mountains. He had found Keshen, which in itself was considered mythical by many northern and western nations, and he had heard enough to confirm the rumors of the treasure that men called the Teeth of Guatlu, but its hiding place he could not learn, and he was confronted with the necessity of explaining his presence in Keshen. Unattached strangers were not welcome there. But he was not nonplussed. With cool assurance, he made his offer to the stately, plumed, suspicious grandees of the barbarically magnificent court. He was a professional fighting man, in search of employment, he said, he had come to Keshen. For a price, he would train the armies of Keshen and lead them against Punt, their hereditary enemy, whose recent successes in the field had aroused the fury of Keshen's irascible king. The proposition was not so audacious as it might seem. Conan's fame had preceded him, even into distant Keshen, his exploits as a chief of the Black Corsairs, those wolves of the southern coasts, had made his name known, admired and feared throughout the Black Kingdoms. He did not refuse tests devised by the dusky lords. Skirmishes along the borders were incessant, affording the Sumerian plenty of opportunities to demonstrate his ability at hand-to-hand -hand fighting. His reckless ferocity impressed the lords of Keshen, already aware of his reputation as a leader of men, the prospect seemed favorable. All Conan secretly desired was employment to give him legitimate excuse for remaining in Keshen long enough to locate the hiding place of the teeth of Guahlur. Then there came an interruption. Fatmekri came to Keshen at the head of an embassy from Zimbabwe. Fatmekri was a Stygian, an adventurer and a rogue, whose wits had recommended him to the twin kings of the great hybrid trading kingdom, which lay many days march to the east. He and the Cimmerian knew each other of old, and without love, Thutmikri likewise had a proposition to make to the king of Keshen, and it also concerned the conquest of Pont, which kingdom, incidentally, lying east of Keshen, had recently expelled the Zimbabwean traders and burned their fortresses. His offer outweighed even the prestige of Conan. He pledged himself to invade Punt from the east with a host of black spearmen, Shemitish archers, and mercenary swordsmen, 
and to aid the king of Keshen to annex the hostile kingdom. The benevolent kings of Zimbabwe desired only a monopoly of the trade of Keshen and her tributaries, and, as a pledge of good faith, some of the teeth of Gwalor. These would be put to no base usage. Thutmikri hastened to explain to the suspicious chieftains. They would be placed in the temple of Zimbabwe beside the squat gold idols of Dagon and Durkato, sacred guests in the holy shrine of the kingdom, to seal the covenant between Kashan and Zimbabwe. This statement brought a savage grin to Conan's hard lips. The Cimmerian made no attempt to match wits and intrigue with Thutmikri and his Shemitish partner Zarcheba. He knew that if Thutmikri won his point, he would insist on the instant banishment of his rival. There was but one thing for Conan to do, find the jewels before the king of Keshen made up his mind and flee with them. But by this time he was certain that they were not hidden in Kesha, the royal city, which was a swarm of thatched huts crowding about a mud wall that enclosed a palace of stone and mud and bamboo. While he fumed with nervous impatience, the high priest Gorolga announced that before any decision could be reached, the will of the gods must be ascertained concerning the proposed alliance with Zimbabwe and the Pledge of Objects, long held holy and inviolate. The oracle of Alkmin must be consulted. This was an awesome thing, and it caused tongues to wag excitedly in palace and beehive hut. Not for a century had the priests visited the silent city. The oracle, men said, was the Princess Yelea, the last ruler of Alcminon, who had died in the full bloom of her youth and beauty, and whose body had miraculously remained unblemished throughout the ages. Of old, priests had made their way into the haunted city, and she had taught them wisdom. The last priest to seek the oracle had been a wicked man who'd sought to steal for himself the curiously cut jewels that men called the teeth of Gwalher. But some doom had come upon him in the deserted palace, from which his acolytes fleeing had told tales of horror that had for a hundred years frightened the priest from the city and the oracle. But Gorulga, the present high priest, as one confident in his knowledge of his own integrity, announced that he would go with a handful of followers to revive the ancient custom. And in the excitement, tongues buzzed indiscreetly, and Conan caught the clue for which he had sought for weeks— the overheard whisper of a lesser priest that sent the Cimmerians stealing out of Kesha the night before the dawn when the priests were to start. Riding as hard as he dared for a night and a day and a night, he came in the early dawn to the cliffs of Alkmenon, which stood in the southwestern corner of the kingdom, amidst uninhabited jungle which was taboo to the common men. None but the priests dared approach the haunted vale within a distance of many miles, and not even a priest had entered Alkmenon for a hundred years. No man had ever climbed these cliffs, legend said, and none but the priests knew the secret entrance into the valley. Conan did not waste time looking for it. Steeps that balked these black people, horsemen and dwellers of plain and level forest, were not impossible for a man born in the rugged hills of Cimmeria. Now, on the summit of the cliffs, he looked down into the circular valley and wondered what plague, war, or superstition had driven the members of that ancient white race forth from their stronghold to mingle with and be absorbed by the black tribes that hemmed them in. This valley had been their citadel. There the palace stood, and there only the royal family and their court dwelt. The real city stood outside the cliffs. Those waving masses of green jungle vegetation hid its ruins. 
that the domes that glistened in the leaves below him were the unbroken pinnacles of the royal palace of Orkmenon, which had defied the corroding ages. Swinging a leg over the rim, he went down swiftly. The inner side of the cliffs was more broken, not quite so sheer. In less than half the time it had taken him to ascend the outer side, he dropped to the swarded valley floor. With one hand on his sword, he looked alertly about him. There was no reason to suppose men lied when they said that Alcmenon was empty and deserted, haunted only by the ghosts of the dead past. But it was Conan's nature to be suspicious and wary. The silence was primordial. Not even a leaf quivered on a branch. When he bent to peer under the trees, he saw nothing but the marching rows of trunks receding and receding into the blue gloom of the deep woods. Nevertheless, he went warily, sword in hand, his restless eyes combing the shadows from side to side, his springy tread making no sound on the sward. All about him he saw signs of an ancient civilization, marble fountains, voiceless and crumbling, stood in circles of slender trees whose patterns were too symmetrical to have been a chance of nature. Forest growth and underbrush had invaded the evenly planned groves, but their outlines were still visible. Broad pavements ran away under the trees, broken and with grass growing through the wide cracks. He glimpsed walls with ornamental copings, lattices of carven stone that might once have served as the walls of pleasure pavilions. Ahead of him, through the trees, the domes gleamed and the bulk of the structure supporting them became more apparent as he advanced. Presently, pushing through a screen of vine-tangled branches, he came into a comparatively open space where the trees straggled, unencumbered by undergrowth, and saw before him the wide, pillared portico of the palace. As he mounted the broad marble steps, he noted that the building was in far better state of preservation than the lesser structures he had glimpsed. The thick walls and massive pillars seemed too powerful to crumble before the assault of time and the elements. The same enchanted quiet brooded over all. The cat-like pad of his sandaled feet seemed startlingly loud in the stillness. Somewhere in this palace lay the effigy or image which had in times past served as oracle for the priests of Keshen, and somewhere in the palace, unless that indiscreet priest had babbled a lie, was hidden the treasure of the forgotten kings of Alcmenian. Conan passed into a broad, lofty hall, lined with tall columns between which arches gaped, their doors long rotted away. He traversed this in a twilight dimness, and at the other end passed through great double-valved bronze doors which stood partly open, as they might have stood for centuries. He emerged into a vast domed chamber, which must have served as audience hall for the kings of Alcmenon. It was octagonal in shape, and the great dome up in which the lofty ceiling curved, obviously, was cunningly pierced, for the chamber was much better lighted than the hall which led to it. At the farther side of the great room, there rose a dais with broad lapis lazuli steps leading up to it, and on that dais there stood a massive chair with ornate arms and a high back, which once doubtless supported a cloth of gold canopy. Conan grunted explosively, and his eyes lit. The golden throne of Alcmenon, named in immemorial legendary, he weighed it with a practiced eye. It represented a fortune in itself, if he were but able to bear it away. Its richness fired his imagination concerning the treasure itself and made him burn with eagerness. His fingers itched, 
to plunge among the gems he had heard described by storytellers in the market squares of Kesha, who repeated tales handed down from mouth to mouth through the centuries. Jewels not to be duplicated in the world, rubies, emeralds, diamonds, bloodstones, opals, sapphires, the loot of the ancient world. He had expected to find the oracle effigy seated on the throne, but since it was not, it was probably placed in some other part of the palace, if, indeed, such a thing really existed. But since he had turned his face toward Keshen, so many myths had proved to be realities that he did not doubt that they would find some kind of image or god. Behind the throne there was a narrow arched doorway, which doubtless had been masked by hangings in the days of Orgmenon's life. He glanced through it and saw that it led into an alcove, empty, and with a narrow corridor leading up from it at right angles. Turning away from it, he spied another arch to the left of the dais, and it, unlike the others, was furnished with a door. Nor was it any common door. The portal was of the same rich metal as the throne, and carved with many curious arabesques. At his touch, it swung open so readily that its hinges might recently have been oiled. Inside, he halted, staring. He was in a square chamber of no great dimensions, whose marble walls rose to an ornate ceiling inlaid with gold. Gold friezes ran about the base and the top of the walls, and there was no door other than the one through which he had entered. But he noted these details mechanically. His whole attention was centered on the shape which lay on an ivory dais before him. He had expected an image, probably carved with the skill of a forgotten art, but no art could mimic the perfection of the figure that lay before him. It was no effigy of stone or metal or ivory. It was the actual body of a woman, and by what dark art the ancients had preserved that form, unblemished for so many ages, Conan could not even guess. The very garments she wore were intact, and Conan scowled at that, a vague uneasiness stirring at the back of his mind. The arts that preserved the body should not have affected the garments. Yet there they were, gold breastplates set with concentric circles of small gems, gilded sandals, and a short silken skirt upheld by a jeweled girdle. Neither cloth nor metal showed any signs of decay. Yelea was coldly beautiful even in death. Her body was like alabaster, slender yet voluptuous. A great crimson jewel gleamed against the darkly piled foam of her hair. Conan stood frowning down at her, and then tapped the dais with his sword. Possibilities of a hollow containing the treasure occurred to him, but the dais rang solid. He turned and paced the chamber in some indecision. Where should he search first in the limited time at his disposal? The priest he had overheard babbling to a courtesan had said the treasure was hidden in the palace. But that included a space of considerable vastness. He wondered if he should hide himself until the priests had come and gone, then renew the search. But there was a strong chance that they might take the jewels with them when they returned to Kesha, for he was convinced that Thutmikri had corrupted Garuga. Conan could predict Thutmikri's plans from his knowledge of the man. He knew that it had been Thutmikri who had proposed the conquest of Pont to the kings of Zimbabwe, which conquest was but one move toward their real goal, the capture of the teeth of Gwalha. Those wary kings would demand proof that the treasure really existed before they made any move. The jewels Thutmikri asked as a pledge would furnish that proof. With positive evidence of the treasure's reality, the kings of Zimbabwe would move. 
Gont would be invaded simultaneously from the east and the west, but the Zimbabweans would see to it that the Kashani did most of the fighting, and then, when both Pont and Keshan were exhausted from the struggle, the Zimbabweans would crush both races. Loot Keshan and take the treasure by force if they had to destroy every building and torture every living human in the kingdom. But there was always another possibility. If Thutmikri could get his hands on the hoard, it would be characteristic of the man to cheat his employers, steal the jewels for himself and decamp, leaving the Zimbabwean emissaries holding the sack. Conan believed that this consulting of the oracle was but a ruse to persuade the king of Keshen to accede to Thutmikri's wishes, for he never for a moment doubted that Garulga was as subtle and devious as all the rest mixed up in this grand swindle. Conan had not approached the high priest himself, because in the game of bribery he would have no chance against Thutmikri, and to attempt it would be to play directly into the Stygian's hands. Garulga could denounce the Sumerian to the people, establish a reputation for integrity, and rid Thutmikri of his rival at one stroke. He wondered how Thutmikri had corrupted the high priest, and just what could be offered as a bribe to a man who had the greatest treasure in the world under his fingers. At any rate, he was sure that the oracle would be made to say that the gods willed it, that Keshen would follow Thutmikri's wishes, and he was sure, too, that it would drop a few pointed remarks concerning himself. After that, Keshen would be too hot for the Cimmerian, nor had Conan had any intention of returning when he rode way in the night. The oracle chamber held no clue for him. He went forth into the great throne room and laid his hands on the throne. It was heavy, but he could tilt it up. The floor beneath, a thick marble dais, was solid. Again he sought the alcove. His mind clung to a secret crypt near the oracle. Painstakingly he began to tap along the walls, and presently his taps rang hollow at a spot opposite the mouth of the narrow corridor. Looking more closely... He saw that the crack between the marble panel at that point and the next was wider than usual. He inserted a dagger point and pried. Silently the panel swung open, revealing a niche in the wall, but nothing else. He swore feelingly. The aperture was empty, and it did not look as if it had ever served as a crypt for treasure. Leaning into the niche, he saw a system of tiny holes in the wall, about on a level with a man's mouth. He peered through and grunted understandingly. That was the wall that formed the partition between the alcove and the oracle chamber. Those holes had not been visible in the chamber. Conan grinned. This explained the mystery of the oracle, but it was a bit cruder than he had expected. Garulga would plant either himself or some trusted minion in that niche to talk through the holes. The credulous acolytes, black men all, would accept it as the veritable voice of Yelea, Remembering something, the Cimmerian drew forth the roll of parchment he had taken from the mummy and unrolled it carefully as it seemed ready to fall to pieces with age. He scowled over the dim characters with which it was covered. In his roaming about the world, the giant adventurer had picked up a wide smattering of knowledge, particularly including the speaking and reading of many alien tongues. Many a sheltered scholar would have been astonished at the Sumerian's linguistic abilities, for he had experienced many adventures where knowledge of a strange language had meant the difference between life and death. The characters were puzzling, at once familiar and unintelligible, and presently he discovered the reason. They were the characters of archaic Polishtic, which possessed many points of difference from the modern script, with which he was familiar, 
and which three centuries ago had been modified by conquest by a nomad tribe. This older, purer script baffled him. He made out a recurrent phrase, however, which he recognized as a proper name, Bit, Yakin. He gathered that it was the name of the writer. Scowling, his lips unconsciously moving as he struggled with the task, he blundered through the manuscript, finding much of it untranslatable and most of the rest of it obscure. He gathered that the writer, the mysterious Bit, Yakin, had come from afar with his servants and entered the valley of Alkmenon. Much that followed was meaningless, interspersed as it was with unfamiliar phrases and characters. Such as he could translate seemed to indicate the passing of a very long period of time. The name of Yelaya was repeated frequently, and toward the last part of the manuscript it became apparent that Bit, Yakin, knew that death was upon him. With a slight start, Conan realized that the mummy in the cavern must be the remains of the writer of the manuscript, the mysterious Palishti Bit, Yakin. The man had died as he had prophesied, and his servants, obviously, had placed him in that open crypt, high up on the cliffs, according to his instructions before his death. It was strange that bit, Yakin was not mentioned in any of the legends of Alkmenon. Obviously he had come to the valley, after it had been deserted by the original inhabitants. The manuscript indicated as much, but it seemed peculiar that the priests who came in the old days to consult the oracle had not seen the man or his servants. Conan felt sure that the mummy and this parchment was more than a hundred years old. Bit, Yakin had dwelt in the valley when the priests came of old to bow before dead Yelea, yet concerning him the legends were silent, telling only of a deserted city haunted only by the dead. Why had the man dwelt in this desolate spot, and to what unknown destination had his servants departed after disposing of their master's corpse? Conan shrugged his shoulders and thrust the parchment back into his girdle. He started violently, the skin on the backs of his hands tingling. Startingly, shockingly, in the slumberous stillness, there had boomed the deep strident clangor of a great gong. He wheeled, crouching like a great cat, sword in hand, glaring down the narrow corridor from which the sound had seemed to come. Had the priests of Kesha arrived... This was improbable, he knew. They would not have had time to reach the valley. But that gong was indisputable evidence of human presence. Conan was basically a direct actionist. Such subtlety as he possessed had been acquired through contact with the more devious races. When taken off guard by some unexpected occurrence, he reverted instinctively to type. So now, instead of hiding or slipping away in the opposite direction as the average man might have done, he ran straight down the corridor in the direction of the sound. His sandals made no more sound than the pads of a panther would have made. His eyes were slits, his lips unconsciously a snarl. Panic had momentarily touched his soul at the shock of that unexpected reverberation, and the red rage of the primitive that is wakened by threat of peril always lurked close to the surface of the Sumerian. He emerged presently from the winding corridor into a small open court. Something glinting in the sun caught his eye. It was the gong, a great gold disc, hanging from a gold arm extending from the crumbling wall. A brass mallet lay near, but there was no sound or sight of humanity. The surrounding arches gaped emptily. Conan crouched inside the doorway for what seemed a long time. There was no sound or movement throughout the great palace. 
His patience exhausted at last, he glided around the curve of the court, peering into the arches, ready to leap either way like a flash of light, or to strike right or left as a cobra strikes. He reached the gong, started into the arch nearest it. He saw only a dim chamber littered with the debris of decay. Beneath the gong, the polished marble flag showed no footprint, but there was a scent in the air, a faintly fetid odor he could not classify. His nostrils dilated like those of a wild beast as he sought in vain to identify it. He turned toward the arch. With appalling suddenness, the seemingly solid flags splintered and gave way under his feet. Even as he fell, he spread wide his arms and caught the edges of the aperture that gaped beneath him. The edges crumbled off under his clutching fingers. Down into utter blackness he shot, into black icy water that gripped him and whirled him away with breathless speed. Chapter 2 The Cimmerian at first made no attempt to fight the current that was sweeping him through lightless night. He kept himself afloat, gripping between his teeth the sword which he had not relinquished, even in his fall, and did not seek to guess to what doom he was being born. But suddenly, a beam of light lanced the darkness ahead of him. He saw the surging, seething black surface of the water, in turmoil, as if disturbed by some monster of the deep, and he saw the sheer stone walls of the channel curved up to a vault overhead. On each side ran a narrow ledge, just below the arching roof, but they were far out of his reach. At one point this roof had been broken, probably fallen in, and the light was streaming through the aperture. Beyond that shaft of light was utter blackness, and panic assailed the Sumerian as he saw he would be swept on past that spot of light and into the unknown blackness again. Then he saw something else, bronze ladders extending from the ledges to the water's surface at regular intervals, and there was one just ahead of him. Instantly, he struck out for it, fighting the current that would have held him to the middle of the stream. It dragged at him, as with tangible, animate, slimy hands, but he buffeted the rushing surge with the strength of desperation and drew closer and closer and closer in shore, fighting furiously for every inch. Now he was even with the ladder, and with a fierce, gasping plunge, he gripped the bottom rung and hung on, breathless. A few seconds later he struggled up out of the seething water, trusting his weight dubiously to the corroded rungs. They sagged and bent, but they held and he clambered up onto the narrow ledge, which ran along the wall, scarcely a man's length below the curving roof. The tall Cimmerian was forced to bend his head as he stood up. A heavy bronze door showed in the stone at a point even with the head of the ladder, but it did not give to Conan's efforts. He transferred his sword from his teeth to its scabbard, spitting blood, for the edge had cut his lips in that fierce fight with the river, and turned his attention to the broken roof. He could reach his arms up through the crevice and grip the edge, and careful testing told him it would bear his weight. An instant later, he had drawn himself up through the hole and found himself in a wide chamber in a state of extreme disrepair. Most of the roof had fallen in, as well as a great section of the floor, which was laid over the vault of a subterranean river. Broken arches opened into other chambers and corridors, and Conran believed he was still in the great palace. He wondered uneasily how many chambers in that palace had underground water directly under them, and when the ancient flags or tiles might give way again and precipitate him back into the current from which he had just crawled. And he wondered just how much of an accident that fall had been, 
Had those rotten flags simply chanced to give way beneath his weight, or was there a more sinister explanation? One thing at least was obvious. He was not the only living thing in that palace. That gong had not sounded of its own accord, whether the noise had been meant to lure him to his death or not. The silence of the palace became suddenly sinister, fraught with crawling menace. Could it be someone on the same mission as himself? A sudden thought occurred to him at the memory of the mysterious bit, Yakin. Was it not possible that this man had found the teeth of Guachleur in his long residence in Augminen, that his servants had taken them with them when they departed? The possibility that he might be following a will, while the wisp infuriated the Cimmerian. Choosing a corridor which he believed led back toward the part of the palace he had first entered, he hurried along it, stepping gingerly as he thought of that black river that seethed and foamed somewhere below his feet. His speculations recurrently revolved about the oracle chamber and its cryptic occupant. Somewhere in that vicinity must be the clue to the mystery of the treasure, if indeed it still remained in its immemorial hiding place. The great palace lay silent as ever, disturbed only by the swift passing of his sandaled feet. The chambers and halls he traversed were crumbling into ruin, but as he advanced the ravages of decay became less apparent. He wondered briefly for what purpose the ladders had been suspended from the ledges over the subterranean river, but dismissed the matter with a shrug. He was little interested in speculating over unremunerative problems of antiquity. He was not sure just where the oracle chamber lay from where he was, but presently he emerged into a corridor which led back into the great throne room under one of the arches. He had reached a decision. It was useless for him to wander aimlessly about the palace, seeking the hall. He would conceal himself somewhere here, wait until the Kashani priests came, and then, after they had gone through the farce of consulting the oracle, he would follow them to the hiding place of the gems, to which he was certain they would go. Perhaps they would take only a few of the jewels with them. He would content himself with the rest. Drawn by a morbid fascination, he re-entered the oracle chamber and stared down again at the motionless figure of the princess who was worshipped as a goddess, entranced by her frigid beauty. What cryptic secret was locked in that marvellously moulded form? He started violently, the breath sucked through his teeth, the short hairs prickled at the back of his scalp, the body still lay as he had first seen it, silent, motionless, in breastplates of jewelled gold, gilded sandals and silken skirt. But now there was a subtle difference. The lissom limbs were not rigid. A peach bloom touched the cheeks. The lips were red. With a panicky curse, Conan ripped out his sword. Crumb, she's alive! At his words, the long, dark lashes lifted. The eyes opened and gazed up at him inscrutably, dark, lustrous, mystical. He glared in frozen speechlessness. She sat up with a supple ease, still holding his ensorcelled stare. He licked his dry lips and found voice. You, are uh, are you Yelaya? he stammered. I am Yelaya. The voice was rich and musical, and he stared with new wonder. Do not fear. I will not harm you if you do my bidding. How can a dead woman come to life after all these centuries? he demanded, as if sceptical of what his senses told him. A curious gleam was beginning to smolder in his eyes. She lifted her arms in a mystical gesture. I am a goddess, 
A thousand years ago there descended upon me the curse of the greater gods, the gods of darkness beyond the borders of light. The mortal in me died, the goddess in me could never die. Here I have lain for so many centuries. To awaken each night at sunset and hold my court as of yore, with spectres drawn from the shadows of the past. Man, if you would not view that which will blast your soul forever, get hence quickly. I command you, go, the voice became imperious, and her slender arm lifted and pointed. Conan, his eyes burning slits, slowly sheathed his sword, but he did not obey her order. He stepped closer, as if impelled by a powerful fascination. Without the slightest warning, he grabbed her up in a bear-like grasp. She screamed a very ungoddess-like scream, and there was a sound of ripping silk, as with one ruthless wrench he tore off her skirt. Goddess, ah, his bark was full of angry contempt. He ignored the frantic writhings of his captive. I thought it was strange that a princess of Alcmenon would speak with a Corinthian accent. As soon as I'd gathered my wits, I knew I'd seen you somewhere. You're Muriela. Zarjabea's Corinthian dancing girl, this crescent-shaped birthmark on your hip proves it. I saw it once when Zarjaba was whipping you. Goddess! Bah! He smacked the betraying hip contemptuously and resoundingly with his open hand, and the girl yelped piteously. All her imperiousness had gone out of her. She was no longer a mystical figure of antiquity, but a terrified and humiliated dancing girl, such as could be bought at almost any Shemitish marketplace. She lifted up her voice and wept unashamedly. A captor glared down at her with angry triumph. Goddess, <laughs> so you were one of the veiled women Zarjeba brought to Kesha with him. Did you think you could fool me, you little idiot? A year ago, I saw you in Akbitana with that swine, Zarjabar, and I don't forget faces, or women's figures. I think I'll... Squirming about in his grasp, she threw her slender arms about his massive neck in an abandon of terror. Tears coursed down her cheeks, and her sobs quivered with a note of hysteria. Oh, please don't hurt me. Don't. I had to do it. Zarjeba brought me here to act as the oracle. Why, you sacrilegious little hussy, rumbled Conan. Do you not fear the gods? Crumb, is there no honesty anywhere? Oh, please, she begged, quivering with abject fright. I couldn't disobey Zarjeba. Oh, what shall I do? I shall be cursed by these heathen gods. What do you think the priests will do to you if they find out you're an imposter? he demanded. At the thought, her legs refused to support her, and she collapsed in a shuddering heap, clasping Conan's knees and mingling incoherent pleas for mercy and protection, with piteous protestations of her innocence, of any malign intention. It was a vivid change from her pose as the ancient princess, but not surprising. The fear that had nerved her then was now her undoing. Where is Zarjerba? he demanded. Stop yammering, damn it, and answer me. Outside the palace, she whimpered, watching for the priests. How many men with him? None. We came alone. <sighs> it was much like the satisfied grunt of a hunting lion. You must have left Kesher a few hours after I did. Did you climb the cliffs? She shook her head, too choked with tears to speak coherently. With an impatient imprecation, he seized her slim shoulders and shook her until she gasped for breath. Will you quit that blubbering and answer me? How did you get into the valley? 
Zarjeba knew the secret way, she gasped. The priest Gwaranga told him, and Thutmekri. On the south side of the valley, there is a broad pool lying at the foot of the cliffs. There is a cave mouth under the surface of the water that is not visible to the casual glance. We ducked under the water and entered it. The cave slopes up out of the water swiftly and leads through the cliffs. The opening on the side of the valley is masked by heavy thickets. I climbed the cliffs on the east side, he muttered. Well, what then? We came to the palace and Zarjeba hid me among the trees while he went to look for the chamber of the oracle. I do not think he fully trusted Goranga. While he was gone, I thought I heard a gong sound, but I was not sure. Presently, Zarjeba came and took me into the palace and brought me to this chamber where the goddess Yelaya lay upon the dais. He stripped the body and clothed me in the garments and ornaments. Then he went forth to hide the body and watch for the priests. I have been afraid. When you entered, I wanted to leap up and beg you to take me away from this place. But I feared Zarjeba. When you discovered I was alive, I thought I could frighten you away. What were you to say as the oracle? he asked. I was to bid the priests to take the teeth of Gwathlur and give some of them to Thutmakri as a pledge as he desired, and place the rest in the palace at Kesha. I was to tell them that an awful doom threatened Keshen if they did not agree to Thutmakri's proposals, and, oh yes, I was to tell them that you were to be skinned alive immediately. Thutmakri wanted the treasure where he, or the Zimbabweans, could lay hand on it easily, muttered Conan, disregarding the remark concerning himself. I'll carve his liver yet. Garulga is a party to this swindle, of course. No, he believes in his gods and is incorruptible. He knows nothing about this. He will obey the oracle. It was all Thutmekri's plan, knowing the Kashani would consult the oracle. He had Zarjaba bring me with the embassy from Zimbabwe, closely veiled and secluded. Well, I'm damned, muttered Conan, a priest who honestly believes in his oracle and cannot be bribed. Krom, I wonder if it was Zarjaba who banged that gong. Did he know I was here? Could he have known about that rotten fragging? Where is he now, girl? Hiding in a thicket of lotus trees near the ancient avenue that leads from the south wall of the cliffs to the palace, she answered. Then she renewed her importunities. Oh, Conan, have pity on me. I am afraid of this evil, ancient place. I know I have heard stealthy footfalls padding about me. Oh, Conan, take me away with you. Zagjaba will kill me when I have served his purpose here. I know it. The priests, too, will kill me if they discover my deceit. He is a devil. He bought me from a slave trader who stole me out of a caravan bound through southern Koth and has made me the tool of his intrigues ever since. Take me away from him. You cannot be as cruel as he. Don't leave me to be slain here. Please, 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 please. She was on her knees, clutching at Conan hysterically, her beautiful tear-stained face upturned to him, her dark silken hair flowing in disorder over her white shoulders. Conan picked her up and set her on his knee. Listen to me. I'll protect you from Zarjeba. A priest shall not know of your perfidy, but you've got to do as I tell you. She faltered promises of explicit obedience, clasping his corded neck as if seeking security from the contact. Good. When the priests come, you'll act the part of Yelaya, as Zarjeba planned. It'll be dark, and in the torchlight, they'll never know the difference. But you'll say this to them. It is the will of the gods that the Stygian and his Shemitish dogs be driven from Keshen.
They are thieves and traitors who plot to rob the gods. Let the teeth of Gwathlur be placed in the care of the general Conan. Let him lead the armies of Keshen. He is beloved of the gods. She shivered with an expression of desperation, but acquiesced. But Zarjeba, she cried, he'll kill me. Don't worry about Zarjeba, he grunted. I'll take care of that dog. You do as I say. Here, put up your hair again. It's fallen all over your shoulders, and the gem's fallen out of it. He replaced the great glowing gem himself, nodding approval. It's worth a room full of slaves, itself alone. Here, put your skirt back on. It's torn down the side, but the priests will never notice it. Wipe your face. A goddess doesn't cry like a whipped schoolgirl. By Krom, you do look like Yalea, face, hair, figure and all. If you act the goddess with the priests as well as you did with me, you'll fool them easily. I'll try, she shivered. Good, I'm going to find Zarjeba. At that, she became panicky again. No, don't leave me alone. This place is haunted. There's nothing here to harm you, he assured her impatiently. Nothing but Zarjeba, and I'm going to look after him. I'll be back shortly. I'll be watching from close by in case anything goes wrong during the ceremony. But if you play your part properly, nothing will go wrong. And turning, he hastened out of the oracle chamber. Behind him, Murila squeaked wretchedly at his going. Twilight had fallen. The great rooms and halls were shadowy and indistinct. Copper friezes glinted dully through the dusk. Conan strode like a silent phantom through the great halls, with a sensation of being stared at from the shadowed recesses by invisible ghosts of the past. No wonder the girl was nervous in such surroundings. He glided down the marble steps like a slinking panther, sword in hand. Silence reigned over the valley and above the rim of the cliffs. Stars were blinking out. If the priests of Kesha had entered the valley, there was not a sound, not a movement in the greenery to betray them. He made out the ancient broken paved avenue, wandering away to the south, lost amid clustering masses of fronds and thick-leaved bushes. He followed it warily, hugging the edge of the paving where the shrubs massed their shadows thickly, until he saw ahead of him, dimly in the dusk, the clump of lotus trees, the strange growth peculiar to the black lands of Kush. There, according to the girl, Zarjeba should be lurking. Conan became stealth personified, a velvet-footed shadow he melted into the thickets. He approached the lotus grove by a circuitous movement, and scarcely the rustle of a leaf proclaimed his passing. At the edge of the trees he halted suddenly, crouched like a suspicious panther among the deep shrubs. Ahead of him, among the dense leaves, showed a pallid oval, dim in the uncertain light. It might have been one of the great white blossoms which shone thickly among the branches, but Conan knew that it was a man's face, and it was turned toward him. He shrank quickly deeper into the shadows. Had Zajaba seen him, the man was looking directly toward him. Seconds passed, the dim face had not moved. Conan could make out the dark tuft below, that was the short black beard. And suddenly, Conan was aware of something unnatural. Zarjeba, he knew, was not a tall man. Standing erect, his head would scarcely top the Sumerian's shoulders. Yet that face was on a level with Conan's own. Was the man standing on something? Conan bent and peered toward the ground below the spot where the face showed, but his vision was blocked by undergrowth and the thick boles of the trees. But he saw something else, and he stiffened. 
Through a slot in the underbrush, he glimpsed the stem of the tree under which, apparently, Zarjaba was standing. The face was directly in line with that tree. He should have seen below that face, not the tree trunk, but Zarjabar's body. But there was no body there. Suddenly tenser than a tiger who stalks his prey, Conan glided deeper into the thicket, and a moment later drew aside a leafy branch and glared at the face that had not moved, nor would it ever move again, of its own volition. He looked on Zarjaba's severed head, suspended from the branch of the tree by its own long black hair. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production. 